This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With almost 10,000 prototype photos and drawings online, we make it even more fun. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, the little show that thinks outside the toolbox. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for visiting our website and taking the time to listen. Be sure to fully explore our site for all that it has to offer, and don't forget to tell your friends about us. Later in the show, I'll be speaking to Chris Lyon of Ottawa, Ontario, about a new Model Railroad Expo that's guaranteed to be great because of the proven track record of the folks who are organizing it. But first, you'd better sit down for our first interview. Jim Martin speaks with Doug Tag old, a model railroader of proven abilities who is deliberately setting his sights lower with his new layout. Like hemlines, the favorite height for layouts has seen changes over the years, albeit more slowly. The first model train operations at the turn of the last century took place on the parlor floor. From there, trains moved to attics with layout boards a little more than knee height, and for many decades after that, the favorite height was about the same as a kitchen counter. Then, with the advent of walk-around controls, layouts rose to chest or shoulder height or higher, with some double-deck operations. But Doug Tagsold of Blissfield, Michigan, is heading back to the future. He's dropping the height of his new layout and designing it to be operated from chairs. Trevor and I think Doug is really on to something here, and so much so we've invited him onto the program to talk about it. Welcome to the show, Doug. Well, thank you for having me. Well, let's first of all, Doug, establish your credentials. You've done some very fine work. You've been in Model Railroader magazine. Your ON3 uh, Denver and Rio Grande Silverton branch has been featured in Great Model Railroads. And your HO Denver Front Range and Western Double Deck layout has been in both uh, Great Model Railroads and Model Railroad Planning. And you've also been in Volume 33 of Alan Keller's Great Model Railroads video series. Now, I'm not only astounded that you could possess two such large and well-executed Model Railroads at the same time, but then you could then tear them both down. What brought that about? It's not that I wanted to tear them down, but uh, I'm a builder. I enjoy operation, but I just thoroughly enjoy layout design and construction. And after 20 years of the Denver Front Range and Western, it was time to move on to something different. I was not completely ready to tear it down, but we moved into a different house, so that kind of necessitated that. I like to try new things, and each railroad that I've built has been different from the previous one, trying new techniques, new styles of operation and so forth. Well, what is the new thing you're trying? Now, I understand it's an industrial line based out of Toledo somewhere. It's a layout based on the terminal operations of all the railroads that served Toledo in the late 1970s, which is when I started doing a lot of rail fanning there. At that time, Conrail, Chessie, Norfolk and Western, Ann Arbor Railroad, Detroit Toledo Shoreline, and the Toledo Terminal all had a lot of uh, local operation in the city. And I'm not really concentrating on the mainline traffic, but more the industrial switching portion of the operations in Toledo. Well, I have to say, Doug, as one who has suffered from time to time with uh, rotator cuff problems, there have been times when I wished for lower layouts. Now we hear this new layout is being designed for operators in wheeled chairs. Uh, Can you give us a, a brief description of the design objectives, how these design objectives came about? into the current house two years ago. It was a little bit of a downsize in the house, but it had a very spacious basement. So I was not concerned with trying to cram as much railroad as as possible into the space. I had a large space, so I did not want to be greedy. I wanted to make this layout very comfortable, so I left the aisles very spacious. And the railroad was designed for not a large number of people. My local operating crew usually only 
averages four to six people for our monthly sessions. So I could be real generous with the aisle space and wanted to make it a very comfortable layout and found from operating on past layouts that operating in chairs was very leisurely and enjoyable. Maybe lazy is the word, but uh, <laughs> tell you what, when you get used to it, the old feet get kind of tired when you stand. So we really, really enjoy being able to be seated while we operate. Well, did you have not have a couple of operating uh, locations on your past layout uh, that where chairs were used? Is that what was the seed for this idea? Yes, it was. The Denver Front Range and Western was a double-deck layout. The upper level was, I think, about 58 inches from the floor, which is in the 55 to 60-inch range is considered the optimum height for a layout for viewing and operating. The lower level on the layout was uh, 38, 39 inches and seated in uh, office chairs with on casters so we could roll around. In the seated position, that 38 inches turned out to be about the same chest height view as what we had while standing looking at the upper level. So actually the view and the, the reaching in and so forth was about the same whether you were standing operating the upper level or seated on the lower level. But as I found out, as operating crews would operate on the layout, everybody was bidding on the lower level uh, <laughs> operating jobs where they could be seated. And uh, I found that kind of interesting. And at that time, I thought, well, gee, if I ever do another layout, a single deck layout, I'll build it at approximately the height of the lower level, which was pretty low considering yeah. what the, the kind of the golden rule is for layout design at this time. Have your theories been tested yet? Is the new layout sufficiently complete for operating sessions? We've been operating the new layout for oh, over six months or so now, and yes, I kind of made a compromise, though. Uh, like I said, for years I'd said if I ever build another layout, it would be low to operating chairs, but when it actually came time to do it, okay, let's put the money where the mouth was, and I was a little unsure about that. Not sure how a, such a low layout would look when you come down into the basement. I actually had nine-foot ceilings in this basement, which I actually lowered the ceiling when I put in a suspended ceiling. I lowered it to seven feet just so I did not have this huge amount of blue sky above the layout just to make it look a little more well-proportioned. And I, I raised this layout up to 42 inches. I felt that 38, 39 inches was an ideal height for seated in a chair, but there are some people that just prefer to stand. And 38 inches from the floor just seemed awfully low for standing. So I raised it up to the 42, which mm -hmm. is kind of a good compromise. It's still, it's not a bad height for people standing while they operate. But for seated, I had to get a little bit taller chair. And my friend Keith Jordan out in Kansas City suggested drafting chairs, which are just about identical to the standard office chairs on casters, except they're about four inches taller. They can go from anywhere to about 22 to 28 inches in height. So this raised the seated people up that three, four inches. So it made the 42 inch layout height that I have now is kind of the happy compromise. If I could put in dibs now, can I have that two feet of ceiling you took away? I could really use a taller <laughs> well, ceiling in my basement. I, I'm going to hang on to it just in case All I right. ever decide to uh, do a double-deck layout. Uh, uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's almost a waste to give away that kind of space. <laughs> I'm in an old house, and I wish they'd put in an extra course of block when they put the basement in, but that's just me. Uh, so you've had this thing operating. How, how does it work in practice? Is it difficult to swinging around each other? The chairs are going to take a little more room on the floor than uh, two feet would, right? Yes, they do. Uh, like I said, I had... Uh, a generous amount of space to work with and I avoided the temptation of trying to cram as absolute most amount of railroad as possible into the space. Again, since I've got smaller operating crews, I just did not need a, an enormous layout. 
So I, I was real generous with the aisle space, and most of my aisles are either five or six feet wide. For two people in chairs to pass by each other, you really need a minimum of a four-foot aisle, and mm-hmm. I just felt that five or six would be even better yet. Well, I'll be looking for pictures of this. Are we going to be seeing another article in Model Railroad Planning around this? I'd really like to see uh, this. It's, it's not in the immediate future. I've still got one article on the previous Denver Front Range and Western to okay. come out in MR in the spring, but I'm sure I'll be working, putting something together for uh, MRP or the layout design so we'll keep, magazine or We'll something. keep an eye peeled for sure. What about floor coverings? Okay. Uh, you're not using carpeting, I presume. Uh, you'd use a hard floor covering for these chairs? I prefer a hard floor. I have tried the chairs on a real short napped carpet, like an office-style carpet, and it is possible to... Uh, roll the chair around on the carpet, but certainly a hard floor concrete or a tile or linoleum floor is easier. On the uh, previous layout, the double-deck layout, it was a tile floor, and on this one, I just used an epoxy, a garage paint, put that on the floor of the basement uh, to give it a somewhat finished appearance, but it's still the smooth finish, so uh, chairs roll very freely across the floor. Well, aside from the operational and comfort considerations, have you and your crew had any discussions as to how this might benefit you as you you all age and perhaps uh, become less firm? Is this something that you think is going to catch on because the hobby as a whole continues to age? No, it wasn't really due to age, but yet I, I find particularly if some of the older operators that come to operate really enjoy the, the seated operating positions on the other layout and enjoy this one also. Maybe it gives us adds to our endurance. They can Rather than going just two or three hours, it adds another hour to the length that they can uh, operate and before you get tired or feet get sore and so forth. No disrespect to a handicapped people but I've always felt that and kind of joked that uh, I see in the future my ideal style of operation would be with the layout height that I have with a motorized wheelchair with a uh, joystick control for the wheelchair in one hand and a easy DCC throttle built into the other armrest and I'd be all set. Well, I don't think that's gotta, being too facetious. Gotta have a cup holder in there somewhere well, too, though. You know what? I'd put more than a cup holder. I'd put a Tsunami sound system in. As long as you're driving something, it might as be an EMD. <laughs> I think you're onto something. We're not being facetious here. <laughs> Who knows what the future will bring? I think we've just spoken to someone that's on the leading edge of something new here, or at least something old that's become new again. So uh, we appreciate your sharing your ideas with us. Oh, Absolutely. Enjoy it. I I like trying different things. Each layout, like I said, each layout that I've built has been a little different, trying some new technique or new design. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. I guess the the current layout is, that's it, the uh, lower lower level and seated operation. Well, Doug, we do thank you for joining (laughs) us here, and we look forward to seeing your new layout in print and finding out how well it works down the road. All the best. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for letting me be part of your show. Well, Doug's new notion opens up a host of other layout design ideas for you, doesn't it, Jim? Well, it it does, Trevor, and this is something I've had in the back of my mind, perhaps as I age, but as I find friends around me growing more frail, I think there's going to be a whole number of issues to be addressed in layout design for people who face physical challenges. And uh, I think really that Doug is looking a bit ahead to this with with the chairs idea. But but I think back about uh, Bill Shop, the layout doctor, as far back as the 50s, as I recall, he designed a layout for a wheelchair patient. 
point where all of the uh, turnouts were within uh, a reach of the wheelchair and oh, the tracks looped yeah. around the side. I think of guys like Neil Young, for example, who designed a line of layout for his son Ben that could be operated with breath controls. Uh, there's, there's and a host liked of, it so much he bought the company. Yeah, and liked it so much he bought But you know, there's just a host of creative solutions out there. Uh, model railroad planning, or maybe it was great model railroads. It's fallen out of my head right now. But they had an article about uh, Arndt uh, Garrison, a gentleman who's losing his sight, and how the layout operates around that challenge that he faces. And I, I think of a friend of mine who is losing his sight, and issues we're addressing is, uh, can he continue to run the trains? He knows every square inch of the layout. He, he knows what every car looks like because he's built every one of them. Absolutely. Uh, he, he could still have operating sessions, for example, with a conductor accompanying him uh, and his walk-around throttle. So Absolutely. Yeah, there could be a whole SIG for this. There could be indeed, yeah. and it's uh, probably something we're going to see uh, the layout design SIG address more and more as the hobby ages, too. Indeed. So indeed. I hope that we get some photos from Doug. We don't have them yet as we record this, but I hope we get some photos from him, too. Uh, put up on our Flickr gallery, indeed, which is where we put many photos from our guests. We also uh, sometimes put them on Facebook as well. So you can look for us on Facebook. And of course, if this is the first time listening to the show, welcome aboard. We hope you enjoy the journey. And the best way to listen is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You'll find us on iTunes, podcast.com and podfeed.net. Just take a look on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com for information on how to listen and you'll never miss an episode. Up next on the show, the city of Ottawa is a hotbed of talented model railroaders. In past shows, we've spoken with Mike Hamer and Peter Cunningham, who both hail from Canada's capital. There is an impressive amount of promotion of the hobby in that town. The St. Lawrence Division of the NMRA hosts how-to clinics for youngsters and families. Now, something new in the works, and Trevor talks with another accomplished Ottawa Valley model railroader, Chris Lyon. There was a time when hobbyists in major cities across North America could expect to attend a couple of big local model railway hobby shows each year. That was certainly the case in my hometown, where big shows were held each year in November and March. These events would attract manufacturers, retailers, clubs, historical societies, specialized book and paper dealers, and, of course, modelers from far and wide. These days, such shows still exist, but they're few and far between. We've all witnessed the disappearance of train shows. It's an unfortunate trend in the hobby, since it's often events like these that help beginners connect with more experienced modelers so they can step up to the next level in the hobby. So I was interested to hear from my guest on this episode. Chris Lyon is an accomplished modeler in the Ottawa area who has earned a reputation for painting stunning backdrops. He got in touch with me to let me know about a new show coming to Canada's capital. The first Ottawa Train Expo will take place in May 2012, but organizers are already planning the event. We will have a link to the Ottawa Train Expo's website on our website, so be sure to have a look. But Chris is here to tell us what's in store and to offer insight into what it takes to launch a show from the bench work up. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, Chris. Hi, Trevor. Thanks for having me on. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, train shows are folding their tents all the time. The organizers of Ottawa Train Expo must be passionate about the need for a show or they wouldn't undertake such an event. How did the show come about? What did you and the other organizers decide to do this? Well, when we were looking at developing a new show, we had some concerns about the trends that you just mentioned in your introduction. To a large extent, the model railroading community has been slowly uh, dissipating in the context of getting out and getting in touch with the public and letting them know about the hobby. We've been, over the last year, looking at ways to introduce new people to the hobby, but also meet the needs of experienced modelers in terms of having them come out and learn new things. 
Now, there's already a big annual train show in the Ottawa area. I think it's in October. Why May for Ottawa Train Expo? Is that to keep the two shows apart? And how are these two shows going to be different for the public? Well, yes, Trevor. In fact, it was very important to maintain the two shows. I think the tradition of the first show was going on for probably close to 25 years. And for the most part, it met the needs of the hobby community that existed in the Ottawa area. To a large extent, the show was in a small venue, and one of the things that was difficult for them was to expand beyond the boundaries of the facility they had. In addition to that, many of the vendors that would like to participate just couldn't get in because there was no room. So what we were looking at was uh, finding a new venue with a lot more space, and we did accomplish that in getting the 48,000-square-foot facility at Carleton University. And I think also, too, there was a trend there to try to bring the communities of the Toronto, Ottawa, northern United States area into a big show concept. In the northern United States, there are shows like Timonium and also Springfield have shown a lot of success. They basically were able to expand because they had the right size facility and were able to draw in large populations. So with that in mind, we thought we'd give it a go and bring back into the Canadian community in eastern Canada a large show. For listeners who don't know the area well, Ottawa is about two hours from Montreal, and it's, what, four and a half from Toronto if you put the pedal to the metal? That's correct. And also to the south of us, we can bring in a lot of the large cities from the United States and New York State and Vermont and that area. And in fact, there seems to be some interest all the way from Boston, Massachusetts, to have people come up and visit our show. That's fantastic. I guess the pressure's on now to put on a good job. Now, is this an all-new group of organizers, or are you drawing on the talents of people with experience running shows like this? A lot of the people that are involved come from the Ottawa Valley Association of Railroaders community. This community has been associated with the previous show, and to some degree, Fred Adams, who is the financial whiz behind both shows, is taking the helm and bringing us all together, along with some other talented people, to put the show on. I guess the members of OVAR were involved with, a lot of them are also in the NMRA, and they were involved with a lot of the shows up there that are NMRA shows as well, aren't they? Yes, that's correct. In fact, uh, the St. Lawrence Division of the NMRA is a big-time participant in that they bring a lot of talent from the model railroading perspective. Last year, we put on a model railroading 101 concept, which introduced new people to the hobby, and it was very successful. So as a consequence of that, we thought that it, would be a good idea to try to really reach out to the community this time and bring younger people into the hobby. Well, it sounds like you've got the experience to get this done. It's still a long way out, and your list of exhibitors could change between now and May, but what are the punters going to find when they come through the doors at Ottawa Train Expo? Well, from an exhibitor perspective, there are quite a few people that have already decided to join us and have committed to that, plus there's quite a few others that we're hoping to get in the near future. But just to give you an example of the groups that are with us, we have the Bytown Third Railers, Capital Marine Modelers Guild, Chemin de Vermont and Essex from Montreal, Club Ferver en Voiture, the Meccano people, G-Men, Gilbert, Jacques, Ron and Chris. We have the Morris Telegraph Club, Nova Scotia Railroad Heritage Society, Ottawa Streetcar 696, Ottawa Valley Ho Track, which has got a huge display, the Railroad Museum of Eastern Ontario. We're going to have a big Thomas the Branch display for the young people. 
and scale Picton model railroaders and the Mississippi Model Railroad Club will have a T-track and we're also looking to get a Lego display. So basically we're trying to appeal from, you know, young people and children, families, right up to the experienced modelers. We have a number of uh, vendors. We're getting the Eurobahn Ottawa folks to basically bring in the European model side of things, Canadian Express line, custom trains, Hunter line for those that like to do the scratch building, Laser Modeling 3, which is a wonderful group out of the States that are producing some very fine-scale kits, Scott Mason. We're looking at Modeler's Choice, Model Railroad Imports, Minuteman Scale Models, Sylvan Models for the vehicle side of things, and a number of others that are, you know, too many to name. We're also looking at getting some manufacturers on board, too, so we're really happy to see that we're going to get folks like Rapido and Osborne model kits to come out, and we're looking to try to get True Line trains and a few others. A lot of those manufacturers and vendors are from out of the area as well, so it sounds like you really are drawing them into the Ottawa area for this show. Yes. Now, when you contacted me about the Ottawa Train Expo, one of the things I found most intriguing is that the show is going to host clinics throughout the weekend. What's the thinking behind doing that? It's a new trend that you're starting to see in hobby shows. One of the things, if you go out and you ask uh, model railroaders what they find disappointing about shows is that year after year they go back and it seems to be the same old thing. And as a consequence, there's this nothing new construct that's out there. Also, a second factor is a lot of model railroaders are always looking to learn new methods and techniques of doing things, and what better opportunity than at a model railroad show? It's a trend that we've seen in the United States recently where they're starting to introduce clinics into their shows, and by doing so, what will happen is folks will be drawn, I guess you could say, the mainline A-type model railroaders to the show to come back year after year and have some fun, uh, share some things with folks and maybe even participate if they have something to offer themselves. Tell me about the clinics you've got lined up. Who's coming and can you give me an idea of how they're going to be conducted? There's basically two sets of clinics that will be running simultaneous. One will be in English and the other in French, which is rather unique. So we're hoping to bring in, uh, obviously, a large group of Francophone modelers from Quebec. On the uh, English side, there's a number of really experienced modelers that we have in the Ottawa area, as well as some visitors from out of town. And some, of course, are bilingual and be able to speak to both groups. To give you an idea of some of the clinics that that we have in place, and there will be more to follow, we have Andreas Mank, who's going to talk to us about DCC basics and developments, which obviously is a trend in the hobby that really makes things work well. We have Mike Hamer, who's a very experienced modeler in the area and has actually had his Model Railroad published in Model Railroader magazine and World's Greatest Model Railroads. He's going to speak to people about the joys of model railroading, what aspects of the hobby obviously make it interesting and very fulfilling. Another individual is um, Michelle Boucher, who uh, is very uh, famous in the world of operations for model railroads. He's designed many operation schedules, and he's going to introduce that aspect of the hobby so that uh, modelers can move forward and actually make their uh, model railroading more interesting and more interactive with their friends and fellow modelers. Another fellow in our community, Charles Gendron, he's uh, got his own company, obviously, in painting and decaling locomotives and rolling stock. And he's going to share some of his methods and techniques that he uses in order to customize the locomotives and cars. 
On the side of the diorama and structure building, we have Joel Friedman. He's going to talk about his recent model that he built, and that's a very interesting diorama that actually took first prize down in the United States. He won $1,000 for this seaside model that he built, which consists of three Sierra West kits and a number of other smaller kits in the diorama. Joel's techniques and methods of uh, construction are, are just fantastic, and I'm sure people would be excited to see what he has to offer. Les Helmos, of course, he's a well-known person from uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine. He's going to come and give a, a little talk on uh, online hobby magazines and, and what they can offer to the modeler in terms of getting information about new products and so on. And who knows, maybe in the future we may be able to talk you, Trevor, into coming and joining us. Well, it's certainly something to keep in mind. I could come and promote the uh, Model Railway Show. Interesting lineup, and I recognize many of the names, of course. And I uh, should just mention that uh, my camera was one of the very first uh, guests that we had on the podcast. Most of us haven't built and launched a train show, and I'm sure that you and I could talk for hours about the logistics involved in that. There must be everything from finding and renting the venue, insurance, securing the exhibit promoting the show. We don't have those hours, but I think it's an interesting thing that you're taking this on at a time when so many shows are disappearing, and you must have some lessons to pass on for others who maybe are looking at, you know, the show that disappeared in their community, and they're saying, you know, we should really do something to bring that back, or maybe they've got a lackluster show that needs an injection of, uh, of energy or needs to be given a bit of competition. What sort of things do you think people should consider if they want to build a new show like Ottawa Train Expo in their own community? What, what are the make or break issues for you? Well, I think it all starts with advertising. When we looked at putting a show on this, we realized that in order to make or break, the biggest investment we had to make was in getting the word out that there was actually a show going on and what would be at that show. So we uh, went ahead and invested a lot of money into rack cards and getting on shows and visiting other hobby shows and getting the word out that we were doing something. I think that's probably the key. I was talking to Howard Zane about that, and he runs Timonium. He said, if you really want to have a successful show, it's very important that everybody knows it's happening. Uh, second thing is to have the right kind of venue. For us, what we were really looking for was a large facility that offered all of the security and basically electrical potential and as well an environment that's easy to get to with lots of parking and access. So getting the Carleton University complex was very, very important. That being right on the O-Train route and huge parking lots, it's after the university is closed down for the summer, so that means that the whole facility is ours, and they were quite excited to have us. And, of course, the price was very much bang on in terms of what we could afford. I think another really important part is how you organize yourself. For us, we became a non-for-profit organization, and this allowed us to connect directly with a charity organization. And that, I think, is a real key factor in terms of getting donations and support. We're very lucky the local modelers in the community in Obar have actually given us some donations for startup funds, uh, over $6,000 to date, and we're very, very happy about that. 
as far as the charity goes, we're tied with the Sens Foundation and Rogers House, which is a very worthwhile cause. And so what we're going to be developing is a raffle table where not only model railroad items, but other types of items that have been donated to the community, uh, people can come in and make bids on and uh, put tickets in the buckets. And as a result of that, we're hoping to generate funds to give back to the community. You know, those aspects, I think, are really key. I think we have to do a better job at also convincing the uh, the vendor community that model railroad shows are a good thing. I think they've been disappointed in the past and that a lot of people have come out but not necessarily bought items mainly because of the online buying that goes on. But I think it's very important if they want to maintain a model railroad community that they have to show folks out there that indeed there are items that would be of interest to the modelers and to new people in the hobby to get started. Get them beyond that around the Christmas tree concept into building something for the family, you know, parents and children to build on and rather than sitting in front of a computer. Kind of like we're doing now, right, Chris? <laughs> like what we're doing right now, yes. Yes, well, it, that sounds great though. I, sometimes you have to sit in front of the computer to do these things, but it sounds like you've hit all the bases there and we're pretty much out of time. So, Chris, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. It's been great having you here, and good luck with the Ottawa Train Expo. Thanks, Trevor, and I hope to see you down here in May. That'll be fun. Thanks, guys. You know, Trevor, you and I are both going to be there. The S-Scale Workshop, to which we both belong, has been invited to bring its Fremo display lab. I'm looking forward to having a fun time in Ottawa. Yes, and since you mentioned it, it occurred to me that we haven't actually talked about your trip to Milwaukee. You went to Train Fest in November. Back in November. Oh, what a great show that was. You know, if you want a textbook example of how a model railroad show should be run, hats off to John Tews and the crew. They, they did a really marvelous job. Very well organized. A good mix of displays for everyone, and uh, we had a great time there. And we were one of four S-scale layouts there, which made it interesting. Yes, uh, good to meet some other people and and bring home some uh, some goodies from the other side of the border, right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're looking for some goodies, be sure to check out our website, themodelrailwayshow.com, and check the swag shop. You'll find mugs, t-shirts, all sorts of interesting things that you can wear or enjoy with our logo on it indeed. and help support the yeah. show. And if you simply want to treat yourself to uh, previous shows that you've missed, don't forget to go to the Train Life website. Site. All of our older shows are archived there. That's right. Next time we leave the station, our train orders have us traveling to the headquarters of the National Model Railroad Association. That's where I'll speak with a previous guest, Doug Harding. He's now the NMRA Special Interest Group's coordinator. And I'll look up another past guest as well. Ed Loazzo and I will discuss the state of S-Scale today and why, in spite of its challenges, it might be just what you are looking for. So be sure to join Trevor and me on our next journey into the fascinating hobby of model railroading. And, of course, we couldn't do it without these guys dave woodhead with the music our tech guy chris abbott and our web weaver otto bondrack on behalf of all of us i'm trevor marshall thanks for listening to the model railway show